Whatever you're doing in, in training is in one end of the spectrum and then competition is at the other end of the spectrum. That gap that you've got in between, that, that he calls that gaposis. I think it's just a fantastic word. And it, it just means that the bigger the gap is between what you're actually training and what's then being asked of you out on the field, if that gap is too big, you're going to be in trouble. That was Rolf Oman, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the airbands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. They've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into airbands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. In the world of sports performance, power training is such a common term. But it's very easy to be very general or, or too much of a generalist when it comes to power training because you can do things in a gym setting, in a plyometric setting, where the impulses and the contact times are far outside the window of what is actually happening in sport. Coach Randy Huntington, when he was on speaking on his training of elite track and field athletes, was talking about when hurdle hops, for example, hopping over hurdles on two legs. If you put those hurdles up too high, it can increase the ground contact times to a point where that window is outside of what's happening in sport, and it can actually hurt your elasticity. And in that conversation, Randy was speaking about Coach Rolf Oman, who had done a lot of work studying the elastic strength index and some specifics behind how high of hurdles are optimal, for example, in track and field athletes, in field sport athletes. And how can we better create specificity when we are looking to develop power in athletes that they can carry with them into their specific movements on the field? So Rolf Oman, our guest today, is a coach. He's an inventor. Rolf has worked for over 40 years in international sports as an athlete uh, who competed in the decathlon and as a coach on the international and national level. Outside of Rolf's coaching in the world of track and field and team sport physical preparation, he is the inventor of the 1080 technology, such as the 1080 Sprint device, and he has substantial experience in both the data-based and in the practical aspects of coaching and training. On today's podcast, Rolf will speak on some of the specific drawbacks, as I mentioned, to using too high of hurdles in bilateral plyometric exercise, and then he'll give his specific recommendations 
on heights and practices that he feels are maximally beneficial to track and field athletes as well as team sport athletes. So just giving us a new perspective on ideal heights and ideal transfer for some of the plyometrics that we're doing. He'll also take this uh, element of transfer idea to the weight room in terms of power, in terms of specific impulses. He'll speak on the transfer of Olympic lifts and his progression of Olympic lifts. And he'll finish with some thoughts on youth and long-term development onto the terms of speed and power. This is a fun episode to put together, and it puts a lot of things in sports performance training in a great context. Let's get to episode 306 with Coach Rolf Oman. Rolf, it's great to have you on the show. I want to, for the first question, I'm going to hit you with something that Randy Huntington had talked about when he was on, and that is a hurdle hop height. And I think this is something that it's just like almost everyone who works with athletes probably does some or has at least seen hurdle hops on some level. And by human nature, or our human nature is just to go big, right? Like, all right, you jumped over you know, 60 centimeter hurdles this week. All right, let's do 70 next week. Let's do 80. Let's do 90. And, and to keep pushing that envelope. What are some drawbacks to the, the high hurdles, like the really high hurdle hops as you see it? Well, the, the biggest problem is that is you've got to re- realize what is actually happening when you are jumping. Let's say you set, set the hurdles at, now, I'll, I'll talk metric now, at, let's say a, a meter. That's what, three feet, three inches. Now, on the first one, you're jumping up and then you're landing. Now, on, if you've got 10 hurdles, you're going to be doing nine drop jumps from one meter. And there aren't too many guys around who can sort of produce any sort of ground contact times and any sort of RSI index from one meter drop jumps. So if I was to use high hurdle hops, which I very rarely do, it's only in a setting where I might be after a little bit of force production. But as we are dealing with events where for example, with the sprinters that I've been working with and with the long jumpers that I've been working with that are jumping 27-odd feet. And, you know, Sue was running, you know, Tokyo, you ran 9.83 for 100. These guys are in the ground 120 milliseconds on the board. Uh, Sue's in the ground less than 100 milliseconds. So if we look at what's going on with a high hurdle hop over a metre, you're in the sort of in the vicinity of even if you've got somebody who's, who's exceptional, they're pushing it to get under 220, 250 milliseconds. So we're looking at, even for the long jumpers, we're looking at a, you know, at a, at a ground contact time, which is double what they're doing. So you've got to put it into the context where, okay, what am I doing at this time of the year? Where, where am I in, the, in my training process? Now, if I'm trying to build maybe some maximum strength initially, yeah, but the problem is, if I build maximum strength for my long jumpers at contact times that are sort of in the 250, 300 millisecond range, is that going to help me? It's sort of like if I bounce it back, if most people, well, hopefully most people have read some of the work that Charlie Francis did. And if you read what Charlie said, he did virtually nothing between 74% and 94%. And when I met Charlie the first time in 1987 in Australia, I asked him the very question. I said, why don't you do anything at 85, 90%? And he goes, well, do you race at 85, 90%? I said, no. 
This is why, why do you want to get, get speed endurance at 85, 90%? You want speed endurance at 100%. So it's the same with, with hurdle hops. In other words, if you're doing high hurdle hops, if the contact times are exactly what you need for, for your event, for example, some people who are high jumpers, the Catholics, for example, who have a, a long time in the ground, for example, there are guys who drag their, if they, if they jump off the left, they drag their right foot and they do that to prolong the ground contact time so that they, 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 they find that sweet spot where they produce the most amount of force. Now, if that sort of coincides with what you're doing from a, a hurdle jump, yeah, great. But if you're a, a sprinter trying to run 10 flat or under 10 flat and you're doing hurdle jumps, at a meter or a meter 10 or a meter. I've seen guys jump at a meter 40 mm-hmm. and it looks great. But, you know, and, and Sweden had a world, world champion and, and Olympic gold medalist 2004 who, who's got, you know, YouTube videos of him jumping over 180. Um, and he's, he's got, it looks like a high jump bar and he's got three or four of them set up on the track and, and he, he runs up and, just, and does a pop-up over 180 and lands and takes three or four strides and pops up and, and over 180 again. The amount of guys that can do that, you know, you can virtually count on, you know, on a chopped off hand. These are unique individuals with unique muscle stiffness and, and elasticity. And to sort of use that as a, you know, as a sort of, you know, well, this is where we should be going. That's, that's very dangerous. You know, you really need to use technology and understand what, am I, what is my athlete doing? What, what, what makes my athlete work? What's his strong points? What's his KPIs? What's the event asking of us? I have a colleague who has a very, very, very good word for this, and that is that if you, whatever you're doing in, in training is in one end of the spectrum and then competition is at the other end of the spectrum, that gap that you've got in between, that, that he calls that gaposis. I, th- I think it's just a fantastic word. Um, and it, it just means that the bigger the gap is between what you're actually training and what's then being asked of you out on the field, if that gap is too big, you're going to be in trouble. Number one, you're not going to get any transfer from the gym. Number two, you, you definitely will get injured. So you want to make sure that that gaposis is virtually non-existent. And that, that's how I look at it and that's how Randy looks at it. So we'll, we'll actually, if we do hurdle hops that are a little bit higher, as we get closer and closer to competition, the hurdles actually decrease in height. So we're, we're virtually just doing what we call ankle pop-ups with very little knee bend and hip, hip flexion, hip extension. So you're just popping off the ground, pop, 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 pop. You know, you'll do six, eight hurdles, and they'll be a foot high, 20 centimetres high. That's it. Yeah. So with track, maybe I'll, let me expand on this with speaking on you know, track, certainly, but then also ideas for other, other sports as well. But mm-hmm. I mean, with track and field, like you were talking about Subing Chan and like short ground contact times, like sprinting 10th of a second or less, the, the jumps in track, but just a little bit north of a 10th of a second, definitely not over two tenths. And then when you get into those higher hurdle hops, you're looking at like, yeah, like you had mentioned, like it's, it's more than 0.2. It's, I've actually seen it where I know this, at least initially, like if you put a mat, a contact mat down, I've, I've seen up to in my earlier years, in my mid twenties, I would see almost 0.3 sometimes, and then it's like, okay, we got to lower these hurdles. <laughs> you know, we got to get them lower. This is way beyond 
what these athletes are actually experiencing for their yeah. uh, for their jumping events. Uh, so well, let me just ask you this quickly: was is one so for track? What what's kind of an average height that you find works well? Like what's a happy medium for track athletes? That's like okay, this is yields at least manageable ground contact times where we're not getting that gaposis. And then two thoughts on non-track and field athletes, so field sport athletes, athletes in different sports, and maybe in like a change of direction experience, you have a different like a different contact time than like a jump or a sprint, uh, things like that. So first heights for track, and two thoughts on team sports. Well, most, most track events and most field events, but if we look at, for example, the heavy throwers, they, their tendency today is not to do any hurdle jumps with them. It just bangs them up too much. So if we look at some of the, the more successful coaches today, they, they use very sparingly any type of plyometrics. What they do, they do in the gym. And that's also, I mean, the contact times and the, I can get into that a little bit later. What you do with the exercise selection is, is critical also. So you can do things, you know, you can do cleans, which are, have a certain amount of time and force production, and you can do cleans, for example, from hang, which are going to change things dramatically. So we've done a lot of testing with that. Actually, uh, but, could you uh, tell me about that a little bit? I, I would make a note, but I'm, I'm just curious on that, uh, like hang versus below the knee versus the floor. Yeah. In everything that we do, we try to, to work, uh, well, I work with accumulation intensification periods. I, I will do two weeks of accumulation, one week of recovery, two weeks of intensification, one week of recovery. So one of my, one block for me of maximum strength is actually six weeks. Now, the reason why I do that is because it takes about three weeks for ad- adaptation. Now, I find that three weeks is pushing the limit and you're, you're getting into an area where unless you've got very, very good recovery teams like massage therapists and you know osteopaths and chiropractors that are working constantly on your athlete you, three weeks is really really pushing it most athletes that i work with they can barely get away with two weeks so two week blocks works extremely well um, that way we can we get plenty of recovery we don't get any injuries and we will for example if we start with a block that we're doing cleans from the floor in the accumulation period of two weeks, then we have a, a, a recovery week. When we go into intensify, we'll use the same amount of weight, but now we've we're changing. So we'll do a hang clean. Now, what a hang clean does is it changes things fairly dramatically because the range of motion is much shorter. So what's going to happen is the power that you will create is less because you've got a less distance to pull. So the peak velocity will decrease a little bit so therefore the power numbers will decrease and this is where a lot of people start getting things mixed up and this is where we've seen now that to to look at peak velocity and and then only at at power and say right we're getting we're getting less power so this this can't be a good exercise no because what we see is the most important factor the absolute it, it kills everything is acceleration so whatever you can do, once you start into that concentric phase, whatever you can do in the first 100, 150 milliseconds, the, the athlete who are the best, they, they, they shine there. And that means that their, their acceleration curve is a lot more steep. In other words, they can accelerate faster. So we'll change the, the range of motion into a hand clean 
And then we'll, in the next period, if we do that again, we'll start with the hang clean and the accumulation period. Then the intensification period will be a clean where you stand up with straight legs and then you drop the, the, the bar down to just over your knees. So you're, you're over-exaggerating the eccentric portion. And this is where what Randy calls a DIS, a dynamic isometrics strength phase. In other words, getting into this eccentric position as fast as you can. The faster you can cope with that, the more elastic energy you're going to store and, the, and the, the, the faster you're going to get out of there. And that is going to greatly increase your ability to accelerate out back into the concentric phase. Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs' flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free. You do pay a few dollars shipping, but you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula, and you can get that for free along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Got it. Okay. What well, is interesting to me in the sense of um, like if you're working from strength to power or strength to speed, if the hang, my, like my thought would have been like, and I'm sure there's different nuances to this, right? But like, wouldn't you start with a hang clean, which is slower, but then go to a clean from the floor of blocks, which is faster, right? But then we talk about going from full squats to quarter squats, right? Like then that accumulation to intensification. So are you just saying that with the hang clean, like the, the, the explosive athletes, like they just, they were, their reversal speed is faster, which that makes sense to me. But like, what do you, what's your thoughts though on like doing it the other way in the sense of like a hang clean with more force, but less speed and then moving to a power clean? Is there a reason that you're doing it? And maybe this is hair splitting minutia a little bit, but like, like just kind of reiterate why you're going, if, if the hang clean is not as fast, why you're starting with the clean from the floor uh, and then moving to the hang position. We start from the from the floor because it's still. I mean, you, you can't do a, a, a slow clean. I mean, it. You yeah. know, you, you've got to have, you've got to have some some velocity in it to, to you know to be able to rack the weight and get it around to catch it. So it's it's more of a what, what I would sort of classify as being a an introductory exercise. Once we you know we're back into training. And if we're doing anything from the floor, it's, it's always in what we would then call the general prep phase at the start of the year. Once we're sort of in the brunt of things in, in, in the competition period, we really do, except if we've got a period where we're going to need to do a bit of groundwork again, if we've got a long period on, and we, let's say we've got a long period of um, inactivity in the sense that we've got no competition, let's say between four or six weeks, uh, which... One of my sprinters is in that situation at the moment. So we're, we're sort of doing a bit of a mini, mini year again. So we've done a little bit of work with cleans from the floor and then we'll move back into to hang cleans and to what we would call drop hang cleans, 
uh, to speed up mm-hmm. the eccentric phase. But again, if what you're doing, for example, if I'm working with hockey players, I would, you know, I would probably only be working on cleans from the floor and and hand cleans. That that's it because because of the, the glide phase and the amount of time they have in each skating push, it's such a long movement that compared to track and field, it's it's like forever and, and a day. Mm-hmm. So most hockey players you'll find that they're, you know, they're hard pushed to get under 180 milliseconds if you do a drop jump from 30 centimeters, for example. Now 180 milliseconds is that's that's a half decent result from for a 18, 19 year old girl sprinter that you know is maybe is running eleven fifty or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's in track and field there's nothing that you ride home and you know, and brag about. It's 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 you know it's quite a bit of time. So a lot of these guys, if you look at them, they're extremely strong, but nothing happens in, in the world that, that I work with, with, you know, with uh, guys who jump 27 feet and run, you know, 10 second hundreds and, and, and they're under, that's forever and a day. But again, so you, you've got to realise and, and test and see what, what are the requirements of my position or my sport. Um, so if, if you're a, you know, if you're a hockey player, you're going to be, working in that 200, 250 zone, yeah, sure. You can go down a little bit because you should. You should be trying to get faster, of course. You know, I use, I sometimes say in my lectures, okay, hands up those who've got the following problems. Your athletes are too fast and too powerful. No, we don't have, there's very few of us that have that problem as a coach. So you can always get a little bit faster, a little bit more explosive, and that's generally not a bad thing. But again, I probably wouldn't go gung-ho away you go with hockey players trying to get them down to sort of sub 150 140 contact times because most of them weigh sort of in the 200 pound bracket so if if you you're asking these guys to you know to do that sort of of work and and landings and so forth you're asking you know to bang themselves up pretty bad you know as far as what you're asking that what are you getting out of it yeah that's the key thing. What what are you getting back out of it? Yeah. So actually, yeah, that lends into the the team sport element. That's kind of where I wanted to go. I will say, I just want to kind of leave off the Olympic lift section quickly because it's interesting. I I've had some interesting results with Olympic lifts over the year, both as in my own athletic pursuits and then as a coach. And then what I've observed uh, in both track and swimming, actually. And you mentioned you know lifting from the floor. I know I've seen this myself. I've seen it. People are even have been talking about a little bit on social media, some coaches saying, hey, we actually got rid of Olympic lifts from the program and actually noticed some beneficial results in, in some speed and power outputs. I think that just because an Olympic lift has inherent power to it doesn't mean, you know, as you were saying, like it's the impulses. And I've been thinking about like it's the specific impulses and the rates of development at the key points in the Olympic lift that I think are the real, like that's the real meat and the potatoes element. Like I've seen athletes um, swimming actually who, who were very interested in the weight room who actually, like like sprinters, who they were below their max in clean, their lifetime max by uh, like five kilos at least, but yet then they set their 50-meter records. And I, I think about, like, there's a lot of specificity to the power that actually happens in an Olympic lift. And I, I've seen that happen myself and with athletes. And so I, I do think it's interesting talking about the rate of force development, but I also think about in the Olympic lifts that it's also more of a hinge than what happens in a lot of, you know, you could talk about early stance and, and running and whatever, but there is a lot more compressive hinging 
behind the Olympic lift compared to body weight as well. So I think about mm-hmm. that too. I, all I'm saying is I'm, I'm interested in, yeah, that rate of force standing and, and how fast athletes can turn it around. I mean, do you think that if we are talking about disconnects, like people have the Olympic lifts in their program and maybe they're even using bar velocity and things like that as a, a gross bar velocity, as opposed to maybe, I guess, more of a specialized or, or even an eye for like, okay, you're turning around this quickly when the bar hits this place, this is really quick and snappy and, and et cetera. But do you think that the disconnects then what people might be seeing in Olympic lifting and performance might just come from some of those specific inertial points that you're talking about, like specific reversal speeds or mm. like any thoughts on that before we get to the more of the team sport jumping? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you if we've done a, a few pilot projects now where we've been pulling apart data from a lot of different lifts, so we're looking at what happens if you do partials and Professor John Cronin in New Zealand and I had a, and Randy had an interesting discussion about this. And, and one of the reasons why we use partials is because, again, we can load more weight, but because we're restricting the range of motion, we're getting into a, an area where biomechanically the athlete is stronger. So he's able to use this weight let's say if he's doing a a deep squat with 140 and we'll do a quarter squat with 140 what's going to happen with that he's going to move it faster and and the interesting thing we've been looking at is that the time to peak velocity um this is what i have in muscle lab and there's not too many systems that have this metric which is unfortunate but it is just an absolute uh knockout of of a metric because it it's a it's not a real rate of force developed but it's an acceleration index and that will tell us or rather if if let's say you're a long jumper and you you want to be around at the 140 150 millisecond mark we will look at at doing partials for example then in in squats drop squats where we will go down as deep as necessary or whatever you want to call it where we will coincide with the time to peak velocity and the ground contact time that they have in their event when they are virtually remember that gaposis when they virtually are synonymous then that's the that that's the depth that we're going to be using in that partial squat for example so we don't just do quarter squats because we you know we do quarter squats we'll pick we might, with an athlete, if he's 181 tall, we might put an extra 10 or 20 kilo weight underneath the box to get the box up another four or five centimetres because that four or five centimetres is going to make the difference between him being able to do, let's say, 180 millisecond time-to-peak velocity rather than if we get him up a little bit higher, now he's, the, the, velocity, the acceleration is going to be higher and he's going to reach time-to-peak velocity quicker. So we, we're... We're coordinating the neural system, the neuromuscular system, to to have the same answering times and coupling times as we do when we're running and jumping at full speed. That's the thinking behind this. And if we look at what Randy's done with Sue and some of the long jumpers that we've had in, in China, and I've got a guy now running 10-11 in Australia who's gone down from 10-47 in two years, and we use this method. So it definitely works. It definitely works. There is no doubt about it. This just makes no sense in doing range of motion exercises that that causes time to peak velocity to go to the other end of the spectrum. So we're you know we're getting these 
250, 180, 250 time to peak velocity times when mm-hmm. the ground the ground contact times that, that are needed in this event are in the in the vicinity of 150 to 140, 150. So we try to get those. So we find exercises, and this is how we progress. Then in the in the in the intensification period, we 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 will use exercises that have that time to peak velocity index with it. So we'll go, for example, from from quarter squats, we'll go to 20 centimeter step ups. And what keeps the speed and what we regulate to get to, to keep those time to peak velocities at that level that we want is how much resistance we're using. So it might mean that we're going to have to, because now we're, we're getting even shallower. So we're getting higher and higher up. Biomechanically, we're stronger. So therefore, that 140 kilos that we had in the deep squat that became maybe 160, 180, even 200, 220 in the quarter squat is now maybe somewhere in that vicinity again. We, sometimes you don't need to go up in weight, but it's just the fact that they're able to, to do things and couple much faster. And that's what we're after. Got it. Yeah, that, you know, you talk about the gaposis. I really like that. And I think one of the things that's been on my mind, I mean, maybe over the last year, or really the last like five, but especially really the last year and the last few months is I think that we have a tendency to overgeneralize. I mean, by we, I mean, just maybe the strength and conditioning community at large or sports performance tends to overgeneralize power in the weight room, meaning it's almost like this mentality that, well, if you just put weights on something, it makes it better. (laughs) And like, even just thinking like doing dumbbell jump shrugs, jump squats, hex bar jumps, but then there's no metric in terms of, well, how quickly are you moving these things? And especially tacking on, even looking at external rotation and internal rotation, like if we put force into the ground for too long, we have more of an internal rotation bias because we need internal rotation to put force in the ground. But when we when we bias that too hard, when the ground contact time extends too long, we actually get something completely different out of that quote unquote power exercise or just, just, and anyways, I, I'm sure you, you know, you had just said it, you, you said that there's, there has to be some sort of reflection of these specific times that an athlete is utilizing. And I know track athletes, yes, they're, they're going to be a little more reactive or a lot more reactive than let's just say, I don't know, like a tennis player or field hockey or whatever, but it's not like a team sport athlete is like a magnitude slower. Like <laughs> these things, these concepts are still important for like team sport athletes uh, as well, I, I'm sure. I know you said hockey too, like you don't want to treat them like a long jumper with the contact times, but in the weight room, in the gym, I mean, I, I'm sure it's all falling into that, that yeah. element, no matter who you yeah. are, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. One of the things that we've also been looking at, we've done a couple of studies now and, um, uh, it's very, very fascinating. So we've been looking at, for example, if we're looking at a, at a squat, so we're looking at the total distance that the squat is traveling, which means both the eccentric and the concentric. It might be somewhere around, let's say, 40 centimeters. You're going 20 centimeters or it could even be a little bit more if you're doing a, a deep squat. But then we're looking at where in that range of motion does peak power happen. So we're looking at that and then we're also looking at when and the time to the the, the time to, to peak power, the actual TPV itself, and it's it's interesting because when you then look at what you can do with normal mass, because normal mass once you accelerate it, it gets lighter and lighter, and if you're going to do let's say three very very quick repetitions in a squat with 140 kilos, you get, that weight is going to be flying, it is going to be flying. So what happens is that 
And what we were surprised to see is that peak velocity, it, it comes much, much earlier, or peak power, sorry, it comes much, much earlier with normal mass than what we thought. The, the consensus is that when you sort of jump off the ground, you have peak power just as you just before you you uh, leave the ground. But if you're going to do three repetitions with a bar with mass on it, then you've got to slow things down well in advance so that you can pull that thing back into the ground again. So the peak power is coming much, much earlier in your range of motion in the concentric phase than what people think. And that puts things into also a bit of a perspective because if you're doing very quick squats at, let's say, 140 kilos, you know, roughly 300 pounds, and you're getting things to happen and in a position where you're not in that position in your given event, what sort of transfer are you getting? Mm-hmm. You're getting strong in a range of motion where you, 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 you are, you're not even in that position when you're, when you're on the field. So this is something which is then with, with, you know, Randy and I, we both love Kaiser and there's the reason for that. So we've then looked at Kaiser, for example. Now, Kaiser is, is isotonic, which means if you put 140 kilos on, it's 140 kilos no, no matter what you do. And the thing is that once you accelerate it, it's not going to fly. It's, it's still going to be 140 kilos. That's why if you look at power numbers with 140 kilos on a bar, versus 140 kilos on a car. So you're going to get about 20, 25% less power because of the fact that the weight never gets lighter because you, there is no in, in iso-inertial properties of an isotonic weight. It is 140 kilos no matter what you do. So you're getting, you're getting more training over the whole range of motion. Now, that becomes interesting when you start looking at these types of figures because now all of a sudden, I can move that point of where peak power is coming. I can move it a lot further up in my range of motion. So if I'm, let's say, at a 150-degree knee bend, then I'm going to be able to get my peak power to coincide with that a lot better than if I were, were to use 140 kilo mass because I'm going to have to start stopping that weight and getting back to, to a deep squat position again because of the fact that the, the, the mass is, is flying. And then that's with a normal Kaiser. But now comes the, the sort of the, the real sort of the doozy here, and that is that Kaiser have then got another piece of equipment which is even more crazy, and that is the Kaiser rack. So what you do with the Kaiser rack is you've got 140 kilos, but now I use 70 kilos of mass and 70 kilos of air. Now, that's 140 kilos. Now, is that going to behave the same way 140 kilos did on the Kaiser squat? No, it's not. How is it going to differ from 140 kilos on a bar? Is there a difference? Oh, hell yes. Because now all of a sudden, those 70 kilos of air make this thing absolutely dynamite when it comes to getting you back down to Mother Earth. In other words, get you back into the eccentric phase. Mm -hmm. Things start to really, really happen. And this is... I'm doing a little bit of work now with Kaiser and, and um, we're, we're trying to get people to understand just how powerful Kaiser is in that phase because there is, there seem, there's this misconception out there that these machines don't have an eccentric phase because people, if they squat very quickly under, underneath the weight, they feel, well, I didn't feel the weight. No, but that's not where you want to feel it. Where you want to feel it is 
the DIS phase. In other words, the dynamic isometric strength phase where mm -hmm. because of velocity, the muscle is no longer lengthening. It actually goes into an isometric situation because it wants to generate as much elastic energy as possible, like a springboard, and load up that muscle so that when you do stop, there is maximum amount of elasticity built up in the, within the, the, uh, the system to get out of that position back into the concentric phase. That's the body's, let's say, it's, it's a, a mechanism to, to make sure that you don't rip everything apart. If you haven't heard of the Elastic Essentials course or seminar, I wanted to quickly fill you in on this transformative educational opportunity. This past year, I put a comprehensive course together on the evolution of my training system, and it's called Elastic Essentials. I designed this to help coaches deeply understand the principles by which human beings produce effective athletic movement. I've spent many years trying to figure out why athletes were getting stronger in the gym, but they might not have matched that strength with their explosive and dynamic abilities. And I've experienced this both as a track coach and a strength coach, and it led me on a journey to really dig in on those key elements of explosive, ballistic, and quality athletic movement in a way that really gives athletes or leads athletes to their full potential. In the Elastic Essentials course, I highlight my evolved view on plyometrics, sprinting, strength training. I go in depth on the foot and lower leg dynamics to a level far beyond anything I've put out on this podcast or social media. And I also speak on how I totally shifted my approach to maximizing key bodyweight elements that not only helps athletes move better, but also helps them to reach their athletic strength potential. The course is tied together in a detailed programming module, and it also offers five awesome bonus interviews on top of the main curriculum. Not only will this course accelerate your evolution as a coach, but it's also worth certified CEUs for organizations such as the NSCA and NASM. Coaches who have taken this course have said it's the best con ed money they've ever spent. They've said they would pay multiples of the listed price, such as saying they would pay $1,000 for this course. But you can get this course right now for a fraction of that. And you can head to justflysports.com to check it out and sign up today. Also, in addition to the online course, I'm hosting an in-person live seminar July 22nd and 23rd in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can check that out as well on justflysports.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. Yeah, quickly, I still want to get into the, the contact times and heights for hurdles more specifically, but I, as long as we're on this track, you're speaking about this and I, I, this stuff's awesome. I mean, I, you know, I'm sitting here in my basement, like office slash gym. And I'm like, oh, that'd be really cool to have like a Kaiser machine in here somewhere, you know, maybe someday, but a, a lot of people don't have that technology available. And so what you're saying in the dynamic isometric strength phase makes me think about something we've talked about on this podcast before, which is like oscillating isometric reps. So where you would like, let's say I'm going to, and you mentioned specificity as well, or at least semi-specific joint angles where maybe I have a trap bar and I'm going to a semi-specific angular specific position in a squat or a counter movement jump, but I'm oscillating, doing like three quick oscillations down there, popping yep. and exploding out of it. I mean, obviously you don't have the drop and the air shoving you down that a Kaiser would, but what's your take on some of those in light of perhaps not having like the air powered setup? Definitely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things you can do that, you know, sort of mimic these things. And, you know, I think it's an experimental thing that you've got to look at. And, and above all, for some sports, that might work very well. But for other sports, for example, a 100-meter runner, possibly not. Because we, we're, we're getting to that sort of stage where some of these guys who are running these absolutely crazy times 
their contact times is it's under 90 milliseconds. Sure. It's not even, you know, we're, we're not even talking 100 anymore. We're talking under 90. I was, speak, I was speaking to Rainer the other day, and, and you know, he was saying that um, one of these guys who ran 977 last year, you now they, they had him clocking at eight, I think it was 83, so uh, 83 milliseconds. You know, that, I mean, that's just, it's just ridiculously quick. Yeah. So, you know, to, to be in the gym doing stuff at 200, 250 milliseconds, it's like factor three too slow. I mean, am I getting transferred from that or? And the bells that ring in my head is is Charlie Francis sort of coming alive again and saying, okay, so you're going to build speed endurance at 85%. Do you race at 85%? Answer, no. Yeah, it, that's a good illustration too because like a lot of that stuff, and again, where I feel like that that very general, that power becomes so general that it's almost like the 70, the, the 70 to 80% of the gym is almost where it can rob you of that, the true specificity, and you're better off just be, even be either sorry, being very general, like just very general deep squats, goblet squats that aren't like intensified too hard, or you're going to go and be very specific with your power production. You're actually going to stick to some of these elements and metrics and even more so. And and that's where like even the Olympic lifts discussion comes in where maybe we're just better off being in some situations if we're not going to be really intentional about these specific frames of contact times and, and impulses that maybe we should just stick with very general and then outside, let's sprint, let's jump, let's throw, let's do those things, you know? And then it almost seems like the gap, like not, I would call it like the poor man's gap, but maybe I would <laughs> like then maybe oscillatory stuff then could be the, the gap if, if that makes sense where I am. And last thing I'll say too, is that it is crazy, you know, the more, and I, I feel like everybody who is getting into this stuff, like go out and sprint because it is, it is so different than, than the gym. And even when Randy was talking about the oscillating, like these sprinters who are so fast, they have like picking up on the actual oscillation the track is giving you when you're sprinting. Like that is so different than the gym. I mean, it is just, it is just a completely different world. And so anyways, all I was saying is, um, yeah, as you talk about this, like that gap, I think, and, and when you do it and when you see it, that gap becomes more apparent. I guess my only thing too is like when, when would the oscillatory be okay? And I know like Sheldon Dunlap, a uh, strength coach, and he's not at uh, UC Davis anymore, but he had talked about the oscillatory reps uh, in the gym, like tr- just barbell oriented, being really helpful for his jumpers and their stride lengths in their run-ups. But I was also thinking like, yeah, like the early run-up, sure. Like, right, the contacts yeah. are a little slower. That might fit with more team and field sport type situations. Yeah. But if we're talking true max velocity, then yeah, you're not going to get a like a max velocity high, you know, 10 second sub 10 sprinter. That's just not a possibility anymore. Yeah. I can give you, I can, so I can give sort of a, a bit of an illustration there. One of the girls that I've got now from Hong Kong, she's a six foot three high jumper and um, she's had a, a bit of injury and so forth. And because of that, they've been doing a lot of rehab work and then because of COVID travel restrictions and so forth. So they've sort of done a, a bunch of training before I stepped into the picture, um, and it's been at that 70 to 80% mark. So then you sort of look at what she can do and you ask her to do certain things. So we'll, I'll ask her to do a five, six-step approach and do a scissors jump. It looks great. I mean, it looks awesome. Then you ask her to go back two steps and to do you know, a normal flop jump. Now speed increases, and what happens? The wheels come off. Mm-hmm. Because she's been working at that 70 to 80% and 
So what we've got to realize is it's not just 70, 80%, because what happens in the neuromuscular system is we get coordination. We get, we get coordination between inter and intramuscular coordination. So the muscles that are working within a muscle and the muscles that are working in conjunction with each each other, that coordination speed is set at 70 to 80% in that 70 to 80% range. So as soon as she goes out and starts running at a higher velocity, the wheels come off because now the internal, what do you call it, the the intramuscular coordination, it's not at that level where the speed is when she's coming in with seven or eight or nine strides and the wheels come off. So what I've got to do now is reintroduce this coordination in her neuromuscular system at these higher velocities because otherwise it's, it, it just, it's just not going to work. It doesn't matter how much capacity she has because if she can't coordinate that at high velocity, it's just not going to do any, it's just not going to do us any good. Yeah. And that, and that is that is one of the I think one of the biggest mistakes a, a lot of people do is that they just don't quite see the overall picture. What is actually transpiring? Yeah, it's great. You've got these numbers. Yeah, that's that's great. And I remember from my own career as a decathlete, I, you know, I was a, a seven and a half thousand point decathlete, and I was chronically injured. And I had these ideas that that if I shorten my run ups, I wasn't going to you know bang up my feet so much so for several seasons all I did was short run-up work so I had a very short run-up work in the high jump and I jumped over two meters but and in the long jump and I was you know jumping you know close to seven meters with a with a pretty ridiculously short run-up problem was if I increased my run-up to a full run-up nothing happened in fact Mm -hmm. in the long jump I was jumping a foot shorter (laughs) because I, I, I had no idea what to do when I got to the board because I was coming in on, uh, you know, at the board at, what, nine, 9.3 metres per second or something. And, you know, neuromuscular system was just, it was way, way off. So that, that experience that I had as a decathlete and doing those mistakes with the coaches that I had who had really no idea what, you know, what, what this was all about, um, instead of thinking that we were doing something that was going to you know, save my body a lot of, a lot of harm by doing full run-ups and so forth. Uh, we're going to do more volume at short run-up work. Turned out to be a, an absolute disaster because I wasn't conditioned. So what happened is the gaposis. I, I increased the gaposis. I didn't decrease it. I increased it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, though, if you were a field sport athlete, team sport athlete, that might not have been as noticeable. Like I, I know no. I've seen that for me, like, I, yeah. you know, same story. Like when I was in my mid twenties, I became much less reactive and explosive um, than in my early twenties before I started, you know, just jamming the, my mid twenties was like, just, it was the epitome of a lot of general compressive weight training that was not yeah. specific to my event needs. And if I was a football, American football player, no one would have noticed. Like, <laughs> they'd have been uh, like, all right, uh, you know, yeah. but uh, if it yeah. was but high speed reactor track, yeah, like it, you're going to notice. And I did. Yeah. My, my events yeah. were not as good. So totally hear you on yeah. that. And this is, this is, I mean, I, I've had the, the, the good, the good the fortune. I've been very, very blessed in that. I work with the Italian national football team, which is here in Europe is one of the legendary football teams. And I, I assisted the, the strength and conditioning staff 
at looking at ways of, you know, how could they get better and where should they get better and why should they do this and that and, and you know, why should they change exercises because of my background. And I wrote a report to the, to the Federation, uh, which they um, very graciously never published <laughs> because it was just too controversial. Um, but then again, uh, 10 years have passed since I did that with them and for the first time now for an, I don't know how many years, um, Italy didn't qualify to the World Cup. Um, they haven't changed anything in their strength and conditioning. Um, they're still sort of doing the same things. Um, and the, the thing that was very apparent was that a lot of the work that we're doing was just, first of all, it wasn't at a level where you could get any type of adaptation. The, 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 the work itself was just too low. Um, and if they had, uh, if they were doing things, they were doing it at a generalized, way too much generalized, so that you, if you had a, a squad of 22 players, it might be four or five players this worked quite well with. Five, six players, it was virtually, you know, it was a crapshoot. You could just well go to Las Vegas and, you know, put 200 bucks on, you know, red nine, uh, whatever. Uh, and then you had seven, eight players, which, it, it, you know, this, it was sort of like a mixed bag. So, you know, the sum of the whole, of all these parts is you've, you've got, you're using a training system and a, and, you know, and a philosophy that, that's working with five guys in a team of 22. Um, and then, some of these soccer teams, they wonder why all of a sudden they have an ep epidemic of, of uh, hamstring injuries um, and they have, a, a, you know, an epidemic of um, adductor problems because they don't do anything with these muscle groups that, that have, you know, I mean, you've got to realise that a soccer player like an, 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 uh, is constantly accelerating and deaccelerating and changing direction constantly. Um, so you got you got to prepare them for that. So therefore, a lot of the times that they're doing when they deaccelerate, it's not sort of like you're doing. You know, you're running at ten meters per second, then you do sort of like a, you know, what do you guys call it, a cut step. Mm -hmm. um, that you don't do that because you've got the ball at your feet, so you've got to have control of the ball as well. Um, in American football, you and like in rugby, like in Australia when we play rugby, you, you're holding the ball. So you can do a cut step and, you know, change direction at very high speed. Um, soccer is a little bit different because they've got to have the control of the ball. Um, otherwise, you know, it's, 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 you know, you're just giving the ball away to the, to the opponent if you can't control it. So it's, it's much easier to, to build capacity for these guys, really, yet they don't because they have got this idea that if they start doing things with heavier weights, they're going to get slow. Um, because they don't understand that you don't do 140 kilo squats all year round. You don't do it at the same at the same level. Let's say the range, same range of motion. You don't do the same exercises. Um, you don't do the same you know accelerations and, and so forth. So there's a whole array of factors that a lot of these team sports. You know, a colleague of mine and and, and I in Sweden, we've been looking. You know, at handball, basketball. Um, ice hockey and football and you know uh, ice hockey is definitely the uh, of those team sports they're at the top of the tree they they're, they've they've got things sorted out i mean they're starting to do things very well and you can see that by the results um but some of the team sports you know in these other you know like basketball and 
handball and and so forth and women's women's soccer we, I won't even get into that it's 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 so bad it's ridiculous um and you you only have to look at the you know the incidence of uh, how many crucial ligaments um you know do they operate of a year um it's it's pretty horrific figures when you look at it yeah. Um, so I did speaking of team sports, I did want to get, okay. So I do want to get back into that and back to the very original question is, uh, very like, um, you know, a, a more of a quantitative one. Okay. So for track, you had mentioned, you had mentioned hockey, but for track, what general hurdle heights are we usually talking about and what contact times are we generally looking at? And then how does that change for most of the team sports? And maybe not just even hurdle hops, if there's other, you know, like a depth jump or, Anything in that vertical plyometric or vertical to vertical plyometric category, um, contact times, heights, and how that changes for team sports. For me, I I virtually never use anything over thirty centimeters, so a, a foot high. That's it. It's it serves no purpose for me. Um, it's um, when it comes to to team sports like football and so forth, I very rarely use actually anything more because they've got such a bad base to begin with that you can't sort of use higher hurdles with them because they simply don't have the capacity to do anything with it anyway. So you, you end up with with even less height with the hurdles with the, so, with the team sports. So 30 centimetres for track and like 20 for team sports or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to get them to do sort of hurdle jumps where you would you know, if you look at, you know, the amount of, of uh, flexion that they're getting, um, you try to get them to stay in the ground a little bit longer just to get this this um, range of motion. Uh, and then we'll just, as they progress and get stronger, they'll still jump over the same hurdle, but now the, 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 the cueing will be, okay, now I want you to get off the ground quicker. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the cue. So we'll, I, I'll leave the hurdles at sort of at that 30 centimetres um, because all I do is cue them, you know, okay, I just want you to be in the ground. I want you to feel the ground. Wait, wait for the elasticity. Let the ground do its work mm. because that's, that's what it's supposed to, to do. You know, you've got to be able to absorb the ground and then you've got to be able to react to the ground. And that's the biggest thing that team sports don't understand. They yeah. simply have no idea what they're doing with the ground. They just think that the ground's the ground, and that's you know it's it's <laughs> it's just it's, it's just this dead object. But there's so much that you can get out of the ground. And Randy usually says, you know, to people, you know, don't be in a hurry. You know, you've got to you if you get a sprinter, for example, who's who's is in too much of a hurry. Once he gets in the max velocity, you'll see that he he doesn't have any pop in his stride. There's no, there's no vertigo. It's like a tea bag going. Yeah. You're pulling, pulling at a tea bag. That's what you're supposed to be doing. But if you're, if you're not allowing that to happen, then you, you won't get any pop. You, nothing happens. Yeah. So you've, you've got to be, you've, you've got to teach people to understand what to do with ground reaction forces. And most of the time, and especially with team sports, they just get off the. They, they, they've got, they just, you know, virtually rip themselves off the ground before anything. Has had a chance to actually happen. Yeah, they don't have a yeah the, the innate rhythm to their. Um, no, they no, don't have it. No, uh, you know, it no. makes me yeah. Iman Flanagan was talking about that when he was on the show. It was like all we're so used to is just pure like metrics for plyos. Just did you how yeah. high did you jump or even you know I mean how fast did you get off the ground? Which that's great, but like 
you know, the, the fluidity, like that is something that doesn't get coached very often. And he talked about that, I believe in like just general phases, like, can we learn to deal with and feel, um, contact forces? I, 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 so based off that though, athletes want to be motivated. You know, they, like, if you showed an athlete, like, all right, here's the hurdle that's 30 centimeters, 12 inches high. Um, like that isn't inherently motivating, right? Because they're like, well, how do I, where's the puzzle to solve? What's the problem to solve with this? Like, are you, uh, like, is there like a contact time that is like, are you, do you have on a switch mat of some sort where there's like a contact time being measured? Is there like an objective, like they're exploring contact times? And and as you just said, though, you you don't just want to absolutely in every situation just go pure minimal because there has to be a load phase. Like you said, like mm-hmm. if you're running, there needs to be a very brief pronation phase to ha- at least accept a brief, very brief loading to have that bounce. Because if you don't ever pronate, you have no bounce. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. you, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so how do you motivate athletes when that the the contacts are so low? Well, most of the if, if we look at, for example, if I if I again if I take two two variable or two sort of um, um, extremes here, one is a is a track and field athlete, a sprinter, and the other is a, let's say a, a football player. The 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 track athlete he'll he'll look at his his hurdle pops at 30 centimetres. Um, and what he's not sort of worried about is actual height of the hurdle. Um, like the guy that I, that I have in Australia at the moment, I mean, he texted me this morning and he had a session um, yesterday uh, and he said that my, my hurdle pops, my ankle pops were the highest they've ever been. Then, then we know things are happening. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, when, when he... So it's it's not the fact that he's actually jumping, you know, he's he's only still jumping over 30, 30 centimeter high hurdles, but the fact that his his comment to me is, it's I'm getting so much height off the ground, it's ridiculous. Um, so he, he's he's learning to understand what to do. This 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 uh, phase that where he he dorsal flex. Uh, and allows the the elasticity and everything to work its and its due course, and then gets that that reaction off the ground. Then you got the football player. Now, first of all, they're never taught to dorsal flex. They have no idea. So that it's like uh, you know they they've got this sort of what I call the, the the dead foot syndrome. It's like this thing's flapping around at the end of their you know at the end of their of their tibia and fibula. Uh, it's just like a you know a wet r- wet rag flapping around there, and then they they throw this into the ground, and then you know everything sort of wobbles around the place. Uh, their knees, they've got no strength in the in the adductors. They've got to wait for that to stabilise. They've got to wait for for that whole joint segment through their leg up into their hip to stabilise, and then now they can do things. And I mean, by the time they've done that, I mean, I could, you could virtually go and have a you know and have a tea break. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the problem. That is the problem. And I did a I did a thing the other day with um, uh, university in in Turkey, which was long long term athletic development. Um, uh, Professor Rick Howard from what is it Western University and I have been doing some stuff together around around the world, doing lectures. And for for me and I mean Randy has the same philosophy, uh, and that is that. You build sprinters at the age of eight to thirteen, fifteen. That's that's where you build speed. Hmm. Because whatever windows you open up or whatever windows you shut down in that age bracket, that's what you've got to work with later on. 
So you've got to open up these. And, and, and I work with, you know, with this idea that there are nine different types of, of, of movement patterns. And, and what we see is that athletes who have more athleticism, they've got more of these nine movement patterns. And each movement pattern, I mean, it's, it's jumping, it's landing, it's bracing, it's hinging, pushing, pulling, squatting, lunging. Um, you've got to be able to do those. Now, if you can't, for example, squat and pull and, and hinge, Olympic lifting is going to be a problem. So you won't be able to get into the positions, the power positions that you need to be able to generate, to generate big forces and, and high velocities. So I've had sprinters in China where they've got no background in that. So how do you load somebody who's got no idea what he's doing in cleans Physically, he could probably you know rip two hundred pounds off the ground, but we're gonna we're gonna mess him up because he's he's just he's just in the wrong positions. The bar's way too far you know out from his center of gravity. It's just creating massive amounts of torque for his lower back, and it's it's just a you know it's a, it's a, it's a disaster waiting to happen. So that long term athletic development is and what you do for your specific. Um, you know, with these specific windows um, of learning. So, I mean, these, these kids should be doing, you know, um, uh, mobility circuits, strength circuits, endurance circuits, uh, speed circuits, everything to get that neuromuscular system firing and moving quickly, moving limbs quickly. Because we know by the time you get to about 13, 12, 13, that's that's the time when you have the, the highest limb speed that you will ever have. Hmm. The only thing you can do after that is add, add power and 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 force and, and power to, to the equation. But you can't you can't increase uh, limb velocity anymore. It's set. So those windows we've got to open earlier by doing the right things at the right time. And this is what they don't do in, for example, in in team sports. And this is where it gets. It gets tricky, and this is what I wrote to the Italian Federation 10 years ago. You've got to introduce more athleticism in your training for, for young kids. You can't just run around a football field kicking a football and, and think you're going to run in and out of cones, and that's it. Sorry, it's just not going to, it's just not going to you know, get the job done. You're going to have to. And one of the things that I, I actually had a problem with in Europe where I'm living is that a couple of the team sports basketball and football amongst others and floorball they got pretty irate with me because they actually thought that i was poaching their athletes um so the answer i got back was that well we can't we're not going to do that and i said why well if we do that and, and we introduce these things and we play basketball with the with the hockey players we might lose three kids to basketball and i said well yeah, but you might pick up three kids who are basketball players who want to play hockey instead. Um, and I said, the, the whole thing is that, you know, these kids should be doing, you know, what they're, you know, both what they, they enjoy doing, of course. They've got to enjoy, you know, doing whatever exercise or sport it is they're doing. Um, that way they're going to, you know, they're going to get things um, more motivated and they're going to do things in a different way. But um, if if at the same time we don't help kids with opening up these windows, we're doing them a disservice because 
we get to a stage then where they're, you know, getting out of puberty, getting into, you know, sort of adolescence, and all of a sudden, you know, it's like I usually say, if you want to build a house out of, you know, just lumber, you know, lumber and, and so forth, you're going to need a few tools. You know, you can't just give the, the carpenter a hammer and, and, a, and a saw and say to him, build my house. That's going to be a, one hell of a difficult task. So we've got to give athletes more tools early on to open these windows. Then we can do things when we get to this um, high performance stage where Randy and I and, and, you know, and other coaches are working. Because once you're there, um, you know, you sort of, like, again, with, if you look at some of the guys that we had in China, they've got such big holes in their makeup. So what do you do? Do you, do you mess around trying to fix these holes because you've, you know, you've got a job and you've got to do it and if you don't do it and get results, you get fired? Um, and at the same time, wh- what are we going to get out of it? If we do a lot of coordination drills to get him, you know, being able to do some plyometrics, is that going to make things better? For, or is he going to run faster if we do that? Um, it's a little bit like sometimes when you say that you know if if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix you know don't fix it, don't try to fix it. Um, it's question is is it, is it worth your time? Is it is it worth the, the effort of doing things and trying to put those tools into the toolbox at age twenty five, twenty seven? Or do you, or do you simply go with what what's there and you maximize what's there? Yeah, that's that's so fascinating with the the limb speeds at the twelve to thirteen. I I'd be really curious. Um, I mean, not that I don't believe it, but I'd be curious to see like the research behind that as well and um, just the studies there. Uh, anyways, Rolf, actually, that's about uh, the end of the time we have for today. And and man, I I think we got through the material well. And man, it was really cool to hear all you had to say on the different specs of uh, not just generalizing power and, and really tuning things specifically with the plyos and the, the things in the gym. It's really cool work you're doing. So, hey, thank you so much for the time uh, you spent on the podcast. And it was good talking to you. Well, thank you very much, Joel. Thanks for tuning in for another show. We appreciate you listening and we'll see you next week.